I'm John Dauberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the sixth edition of our 2016 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Managing Micronutrients with Soil Testing and Fertilizer, is brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizing equipment specialist, for sponsoring today's episode. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts, Montag Manufacturing's Precision Fertilizer Placement Solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at www.montagmfg.com or call today at 712-852-4574. For many years, growers have considered fertilizer to be nitrogen, phosphate, and potash, but as yields have increased, they've continued to remove secondary nutrients and micronutrients at greater amounts. Higher yields also increase the daily demand for these nutrients, creating potential micronutrient deficiencies. How can growers tell if their crop is deficient in micronutrients? In this podcast episode, Ward Laboratories founder and president Ray Ward will discuss the two methods of evaluation soil testing and plant analysis, and what the proper sampling protocol is for each. He'll also explain how to correct micronutrient deficiencies, including the timing of soil and foliar nutrient application for each micronutrient. Before we get into the presentation, I'd like to mention that Ray will refer to some slides on his PowerPoint presentation. If you'd like to view any of the slides mentioned in this episode, you can do so by visiting notillfarmer.com and clicking on the podcast link under the resources tab. There you will find this episode, Managing Micronutrients with Soil Testing and Fertilizer, where we will have a link to raise PowerPoint presentation and images. Please note that you will have to be registered and logged into our website to access the slides. Let's join Ray now as he discusses proper methods for taking plant samples for analysis in corn, soybeans, wheat, and other crops and also shares an overview of deficiency symptoms for micronutrients and crops. So a monitoring tool to make decisions, identify nutrient deficiencies, and I think you probably understand these things, determine nutrient supply and capacity of soil. You put fertilizer on, did the plants get it? You know, that kind of thing. And then uh, determine the effects of fertilizer application. Uh, in study the relationship between fertility and crop plant performance. And there's some things on plant analysis that I see some people get from some companies that are trying to sell products in, instead of trying to help farmers with uh, trying to make, a, make some money uh, on things. So I, I'm a little bit leery of some of these things. Analyze whole, analyze whole or specific plant parts what sample depends on the crop type stage, and so we're going to go through those things. Here's, this is Nick when he was a lot younger, uh, taking a soil sample. V, VE, or emergence to V4, we'd like to get the whole plant, whole corn plant. Cut it off about an inch above the soil, 
And when I say cut it off, that means with a sharp knife. Because they get too many samples in that they got roots hanging on them with dirt on them. And, and we normally don't wash the samples. The, the gals that log the samples in put the numbers on and they go to the dryer. And, and so if you got soil there, contamination, you might be getting some erroneous reading. So, so please try to take a good sample by cutting off an inch above the soil surface uh, and, and don't have any roots hanging on there. Now at the, at the V5 to V16, then we take the top leaf with a collar on it. And there's a farmer sitting in the crowd here that I told him that and he couldn't understand that. And so I said, just cut the whole damn plant off and send it and I'll take the leaf. <laughs> so to me, it's pretty simple. What, what the top leaf with the collar. The collar is that little ring around the, the, the stalk where the leaf blade connects to the leaf sheath. You can see that and up, in the, up above that is in the whorl and you can't see that collar so you don't you take that top leaf and you just grab that and pull that off with your just snap it with your wrist and and take 15 leaves on the corn to take take a, a sample that you put into a paper bag for sending to a laboratory whatever laboratory you send it to but but don't put it in plastic it start to make silage right away and mold and all kinds of stuff so use a paper bag and they'll respiration goes on and, and it keeps it in good, good condition. At V17 R1, we, there's the ear shoot is coming out. You can see the ear shoot coming out then, or else it's at silking time and you can see it easy, but that top ear shoot, then just snap that leaf at that, where that top ear shoot is from 15, from 15 plants. And when you do that, go across the rows. Don't go down one row, but go across the rows. Make sure you get kind of a random sample. Uh, I say go across the rows because if your fertilizer strips or whatever it might be, it'd be better to get, instead of going down one row, they got a certain kind of fertilizer rate that was a mistake. So do that. And then R, R2 to R6, the guys say, I'm on the NRCS uh, sort of uh, CSP program, and I got to take leaf samples, and I forgot about it, and what, the, what leaf do I take? And the corn's uh, about ready to harvest. Next, well, yeah, but I won't get my money. <laughs> and, and please uh, understand if you're in that program, you, you know people in the program, to tell them to make sure they get their samples by, by uh, uh, pollination time. And, and if, uh, if you don't, uh, I, the new plant analysis handbook, uh, number four, is out, and they do have some interpretation for after pollination, but uh, I don't have those in my, in my computer program yet, so we can do some of that. On the soybeans, uh, emergence uh, pre-bloom the whole plant. And cut again, cut that off an inch above the soil surface and, and take the sample. And then at the, the bloom to R3, and the bloom stage starts about V5, V5 or V6. And then you, you, you walk into the field, and the, top, the, big, the big trifoliates at the top of the canopy, those are the most recently matured leaves or trifoliates. And you just grab those three trifoliates and pull those off. Don't snap them because that takes a petiole. And we just want the leaves on that. So, so in the soybeans, you just pull those three leaves from 15 plants. So you'd have 45 leaves in your sample for doing that. And then after R3, uh, not recommend taking samples. Uh, wheat, we prefer the whole plant until heading. And then if you're taking a, leaf, a flag leaf sample, 
at, uh, at uh, heading time, it's 100 flag leaves you need to get a good representative, enough sample so we can analyze it. And by the time you pull 100 flag leaves, you'll quit. You know, it's just, <laughs> unless you're really determined. And then after heading, not, not recommended to get the plant sample. So, so what you want to do is get the plant sample. Remember this morning I showed those slides, how the plant nutrients, how they are taken up by pollination time. And, and then if you remember, those things, those, the leaves and the stalk and the sheath and all started curving down and, and that nutrients went into the grain on the corn. And so, so those analysis on the leaves go down after pollination time as it starts to form in the grain and we don't have good interpretation once, once a reproduction starts in that way. So that's why we like to have them earlier. Ray, you want yeah. The, you want the no, no, cut, again, cut them off. Uh, for wheat, it's uh, two inches above the soil, probably. Yeah, yeah don't, please don't put any dirt in the, in, in, in a plant sample, it is dirt. In a soil sample, it's soil. But when it's out of place, it's dirt, not, it's kind of, so yeah, please, please cut them off again. Uh, I, would, I would really prefer to wait until you get in the tillering stage. When those first tillers start to come out, you got the crown, you got the crown form there, and, and so those leaves that are coming out would be a good time to take it. In the seedling stage before, the kind of the crown starts to form is too early because it's pretty much feeding off the seed yet then. Yeah. yeah. So, so I guess probably some of the wheat guys can start taking samples pretty soon. We've gotten a few from down in Oklahoma already uh, this winter. Alfalfa, top third of the plant, grain sorghum, second collared leaf at the top. And so uh, it would be it, it's kind of kind of funny the way that's said. It would be the top it would be the top mature leaf until it heads and then the second leaf down. Pasture grasses, whole plants, anything else. Uh, and we got some of these uh, sample things on the website that you can look there and see how to take them if, you're, if, if you've got vegetables and those kind of things. Here's kind of the deficiency symptoms. I think you probably know these on nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Uh, the blue-green color, and, and I told you guys this morning I'm red-green colorblind, so don't talk to me about what color the plants are. Let me see them. I can tell what's wrong with it by, and my wife gets mad at me driving down the road 50 mile an hour and I can see zinc deficiencies and those kind of, do you ever do that to you guys? You know, and then she gets mad when I stop to look. But uh, the blue-green color and phosphorus, if, you're, if your corn looks good or your crop looks good and it just isn't growing as fast as you think it is, it's probably phosphorus. You can see the purple color sometimes in that, but but slow growth is more phosphorus. And a biochemistry class from a PhD, and we had to go over to this little building. There's one in there, and it smelled terrible. There's rats running all over. And we had to grab a rat. We had a gallon jar, and we had to grab a rat and throw it in the jar and put the lid on because it's full of ether, and then it died. Then we took it back to the lab, and we had to cut it open, take the liver out, grind it up to measure the, the phosphorus in that for ATP. That's the, the ATP, the energy stored in your liver. And we did that, and you know what my conclusion was? I'm glad I'm a soil scientist. <laughs> I'm not much of an animal person, but, but uh, so, that, so the phosphorus is involved in growth, in, in cell division, acquiring the energy. The, the energy for breaking down the photosynthates and respiration, it's all ATP energy that's going on there. And potassium, light green color, and spindly growth, and then you have firing on the lower leaves. And potassium, or nitrogen's the lower leaves. 
The pioneer, the pioneer's purple, and every other hybrid is not purple in the early stage, and that's pioneer's trademark, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, the the corn breeders, when I was at South Dakota State, they had markers in their fields, and they were purple corn plants, and it's called anthocyanin, and and there's uh, there's some corn varieties, if you can call them that. There's corn plants that are purple. It's that got that purple color, and I think that's in that breeding that occurs early in the season. So uh, the, it's a, the purple color is anthocyanin. And then you see corn stalks sometimes in the fall that are really red. You can drive down the road and see these red corn stalks. You know what? There's no ear on that stalk, and it's storing the sugars. as anthocyanin sugars in the stalk, making the stalks purple. You can, you can see you can you can evaluate some things just by knowing some of these kind of things. Uh, magnesium, all the leaves turn yellow at the edge, similar to potassium. It's on the, on the ed edges of the leaves at the bottom. The nitrogen's a V yellow that goes down the middle, uh, goes down the midrib, and potassium and magnesium is on the outside edge. The sulfur deficiency, light green, and that's at the top of the plant. Sulfur doesn't move in the plant very well. So, so when you look across the field and you see it's light green, that's probably indication that it's sulfur deficiency. You drive down the road and you see these hillsides that are yellower or lighter green than the rest of the field, that's a sulfur deficiency, and they're pretty easy to spot uh, kind of thing. Copper, uh, leaves are dark green, plant is stunted. Copper is immobile, and so it really affects the top of the growth of the plant. Haven't seen it so uh, in the practical terms, but that would be a description. Uh, yeah, iron. Yellowing occurs between the veins of young leaves. Manganese, yellowing pattern, but it's not as distinct as iron. It's kind of a blotchy appearance of manganese. You'll have these stripes going up the leaf, but they won't be continuous stripe. It'll be kind of blotchy type appearance. And the zinc, uh, shortened internodes, the, tel the plant telescopes in, so to speak. They'll be shorter. And then the yellowing in the, in the mid leaves, and it goes across the veins. And we'll show you some of these pictures here. Uh, boron, terminal buds die, lower leaves misshapen, and shorten the internodes. The boron is, is uh, the ion that's used to transport stuff to the seeds. And so in alfalfa seed production, the guys make sure they got boron on. And, and uh, some people blame that the tip of the ears don't fill out because you've got a lack of boron. You know, and, and it, well, I hear about the tipping back on the ears every summer. You got this corn and it's you pull the shacks back and it's kind of in the roasting area or early milk stage and you got these tips and in 1967 I had four grad students South Dakota State come into my office and said we have solved the tipping back on the corn and I'd say that because partly because it's been a problem for years and, and they're such smart grad students I said what is the problem they said the cob is too long Just in case anybody ever asks, you can use that. Now, if, if you're not, if you, if you got, you know, 40, 40, 44 kernels per row and that kind of thing, you're probably okay, even though there's some tipping back there. And so my tenant, we got 32 acres where we live in Kearney, and, and it's irrigated for irrigated. And one day I saw him on the driveway, and I said, what's the corn look like? And he said, I took your advice. And I said, what did I tell you? He said, you said, don't look. So I, so I told him, don't look at it when it's growing. Wait until it's uh, more mature, and then things look better. 
uh, chloride uh, welding and reduced leaf growth. Molybdenum appears as nitrogen deficiency, stunted growth and chlorosis. And this is one that you need to watch for soybeans. It's, it's very important in the nitrate reductase and in the rhizobia fixed in nitrogen. And so if, you're, if your soybeans are nodulated but they look kind of nitrogen deficient, maybe they are if you analyze it, you have a, a molybdenum problem. Molybdenum's uh, deficiency on acid soils, it's more available in, in alkaline soils. And we, we run molybdenum on feed samples because of the molybdenum in high pH soils, molybdenum gets high in a plant. And when you're feeding the forage to animals, it ties up copper. If you've got too much molybdenum, you get a copper deficiency animal. And so the feed guys have looked at molybdenum as, a, as knowing how much copper to put in their supplement for their livestock. And so the so crop consultant in Kansas said, can you run molybdenum on plants? I said, yeah. But you know, I thought, why in the hell do you want to do that? And so we run these, and there's no molybdenum in them. And then he sprayed some molybdenum solution on the, and got a four or five bushel response to soybeans. Then a guy in South Dakota did that and got eight bushel response on molybdenum. So, so it's one of those, I think, that, that we need to watch more than we do. We'll rejoin Ray's presentation, but I wanted to take a moment and again thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for making this program possible. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at www.montagmfg.com or call today at 712-852-4574. Once plant samples arrive at a lab, workers must analyze them to help farmers diagnose the potential cause of growth problems in fields that might manifest themselves in symptoms like slow crop growth or poor color. Monitoring nutrient levels is also important to help no-tillers avoid problems like hidden hunger in plants. Let's get back to the program and listen as Ray Ward of Ward Laboratories discusses appropriate plant nutrient levels for nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and sulfur, and share some important considerations for maintaining proper nitrogen to sulfur and nitrogen to magnesium ratios as they relate to plant health and yields. Ward will also begin a discussion of deficiency symptoms with various micronutrients, proper soil test levels for micros, and application suggestions for correcting deficiencies. So here is uh, kind of some levels that we look at, and I put these in here because I want you to understand that as the plants grow and you get more, more uh, cellulose and more stock and all that stuff, that dilutes the minerals. The mineral content can't stay the same as a plant grows for some of these. And so in nitrogen at three to five leaf, we got three and a half to five percent nitrogen in the leaf is, is what we call sufficient. In six to nine it's 3.2, 10 to 14 it's three, 15, 18, 2.8, and that tassel 2.7. And I think Purdue is at 2.76 instead of 2.70, but but it's real close to that. And so those are the kind of interpretation stages. So we want to know the stage of growth when you send a sample in. And I think any laboratory would like to know that. What stage, what leaf stage is it? And, and how do you count the leaf stage? Collars. Collars. What happens when, you, when you're uh, at 
14 leaf stage. How many leaves are gone from the bottom? Yeah, a couple, probably. And and sometimes when those when those brace roots start coming out, they peel those those leaves off. So sometimes it's six leaves. So you kind of have to understand where you are in counting those. You can't go out when the corn's this tall and say that's the number of leaves because you might have two dead or you might have four dead on the bottom of the plant. And it's a, you'd have to pull the plant up and dissect it to see where that growing point start was down there. So. So kind of keep track of those as, as the time is going on so you know how many are destroyed. If you're cultivating, then it, sometimes you can see those little tiny leaves in the no-till, but if you cultivate and throw dirt around it, you can't, can't see that. So, so always, uh, always kind of count. How many leaves does corn have at tassel time? 20, right. So you can count backwards at, at that point too. Phosphorus, 0 0.35, 0 0.28, 0 0.26, 0 0.26, 0 0.25 at tassel time. So those, the, you know, as we go along, we need to know that so we make the interpretation. Potassium, two and a half early, and then that drops down to two. You remember uh, the chart shows how the potassium, how much potassium is taken up by tassel time. And so you gotta watch that pretty critical. The real deficiencies, uh, I've seen where you have the deficiency with that yellowing on each side of the leaf blade, you're down to about 0.5%. So there's a lot of hidden hunger on, on the potassium thing. And so, uh, so kind of, you may not see the deficiency symptom, but you need to look at the level to uh, go on. So, right, if, if the, the question is, if you're below 2%, you wouldn't see a deficiency, but you still would, it says you, you should get some yield response by putting it on. So when we really do see the deficiency on the leaves, it's screaming. Yes. Would you say that's right, Keith, that it's screaming when you can see the deficiency symptoms? <laughs> That's why, that's why Keith sent that plant to me that time, and I, they had the beautiful deficiency symptoms, and it's 0.5% potassium. So it's, so it's too late. And can you help it much with foliar? Uh, can you help it much with foliar? And, and these, are, these are the questions that I, I don't know. There's salesmen probably tell you there are, and, and uh, always there. My, my problem is, I think Mother Nature made roots to take up nutrients and leaves to make photosynthate. Did the leaves, did they make leaves to take up nutrients? And so it, we, we do some foliars with some, you know, some of the trace elements, but with potassium, I think it would be, you'd put it on and it'd go on the soil and then if we get some rain, the plant could take it up. Is, is what I think is happening. But there might be people argue with me on that, but uh, it's, it's better to do soil testing and take care of things ahead of time if you can. Okay, the sulfur, point two. Now the interesting thing about plant sulfur, Dan Forge from up in South Dakota is up at his place and his corn didn't look very good. He sent a plant analysis to a laboratory and, and they said that everything was good. And so I looked at his results, I looked at the nitrogen, I looked at the sulfur. He had a nitrogen sulfur ratio over 20. And I said, you got a sulfur deficiency. So even though we got these kind of things, then there's a, a ratio that I'm starting to look at is a nitrogen sulfur ratio. Ideal, I think it's on the next one here. Ideal ratio of nitrogen to sulfur is 12 to 15 to one. So 12 parts of nitrogen and one part sulfur. Now, if you're in marginal, it would be 16 to 18. 
And if you're above 18 on that, you got a sulfur deficiency. And I've had these uh, plants that are really yellow up to 35. As, and so it, it's pretty easy to detect it then. But if you got nitrogen up at 4% and you got sulfur at 0.2%, both of those are adequate, but you got a sulfur deficiency because the ratio is 20 to 1. So, you, so please look at that kind of thing when, when you're wondering about plants. Any questions on that? It's kind of one of those that with the sulfur deficiency you're getting, I think you need to pay, pay some attention to. Uh, and Bob Miller, he's an he's a ad, adjunct professor at Colorado State University. He does our, a lot of our proficiency programs for soil, plant, and water. He sends out to laboratories around kind of North America mainly. And uh, so he did this potassium experiment in the Corn Belt. And, and he did some analysis and it's kind of interesting this is some stuff that he picked up, I think, from a southern state somewhere. But he, he separated out his plots. He had 16 plots, separated them out by their, their uh, nitrogen to magnesium ratio. And when the ratio was less than 11, the average yield was 169. And if the, if the ratio was greater than 11, it's 205 bushel. Now, that could be just locations, too. It's hard to tell. But, but it's interesting that he was able to, to pick that out. And then he, he did this. So, so that you look at the percent nitrogen, 2.7, we'd say that's adequate at tasseling time. And 2.9, those are pretty close together. The potassium, 165 to 204. And, and the 2 is that break. And so it looks like the potassium is what's deficient. And it was a potassium experiment he's doing. Then he looked at the nitrogen-potassium ratio and the percent magnesium. Look at the, how high the magnesium is on those low yields. Does the magnesium have anything to do with it or is it a potassium deficiency? Did the magnesium cause the plants not to take up the potassium? These are some of those antagonizing type things we have in plants. If, and, and remember that in moving trans, uh, uh, photosynthate and those kind of things, the plants making these organic compounds and they have to move, you have to move them to different parts of the plant and, and they're, they're anions and they use the cations to move those things. Potassium is, yeah. And in in high mag in the soil kind of indicates you've got a clay soil. And, and, and then you've got some nutrient, you could have nutrient problems there. I, so, so those things are so interrelated, it's tough to say for sure. And I, no, I'm sorry I can't give you exact examples. I'm not going to blow too much smoke, but... Uh, you know, just kind of, it's the things to think about. The high, high, high magnesium lime, and understand that dolomite lime is mainly calcium carbonate, and it's got some magnesium in it. If it's got any magnesium, it's called dolomite lime. So you kind of have to know the magnesium content. It's not magnesium carbonate, it's a calcium magnesium carbonate. So, so you kind of have to pay attention to that terminology too, because it, and this morning I was going to tell you how lime, lime works in the soil. You know, it's calcium, and we know we got calcium and magnesium on the exchange complex. But lime works by neutralizing the hydrogen. The hydrogen dissolves the carbonate, making water and carbon dioxide. And then the calcium replaces the hydrogen on the exchange complex, or the magnesium if it's there. And, and the, the other interesting part of we talked a little bit about leaching. The ion that probably leaches the most is magnesium. 
it, it'll move, move, it seems like it moves a little faster than calcium out of that top. Would you be better off using dolomite lime to get your mag up or using magnesium alone? Uh, how would you, what magnesium would you use? Magnesium sulfate, uh, Epsom salts, or would you use, well, that's about the only, or K-mag. K-mag is, and that's 22% uh, potassium and 13% magnesium, I think it is, so. Uh, and they're both got, those are sulfur sources. So remember, you need sulfur, so sometimes, I, I, if, you, if you need lime and you need magnesium, I would use dolomite lime if you can get it. That's, that would be the simplest to do. And, and we have some soils in, in, in the sand edge of the sand hills in Nebraska that don't have any magnesium in them, and, and yet it's like 120 miles to get lime shipped to them. So it's hard to get them to even lime. The lowest pH I've seen in sand in Nebraska is 3.9. So these are just some things that the ratios you might see, start seeing some ratios come out, and, and this is kind of new stuff, and I just wanted to put this out for you to see. So we'll, we'll just look at now some of the nutrients in this zinc deficiency. And the zinc, it'll be uh, this telescope's in, and then those, those bands, those white bands or yellow bands, are, go across the veins. That's a pretty good indicator that it's zinc deficient. If, the, if, they, if they just go up the leaves in the stay inside of the, in the intervenal material, then it may not be zinc. And, uh, and the leaf stage then for, for zinc, 20 part per million at 3 to 9 leaf, 8 to 10, 18, 19, and tassel 18. And so those are... I think those are pretty good levels. They're, some of the people think that should be a little higher. And the guy down in Kansas would like to see that at 28, but I'd, I don't want to spend that much zinc, money on zinc to get it up there to that level. So I think these are, these are good, good levels. Uh, there's another picture of a zinc at tasseling time. And I, some of you, yeah, there's a, here's a brown silk right here on the ear. And uh, so you can see how those bands, then the, the veins kind of stayed green, but it killed all the material between the veins. And in one place there, it went across the veins to kill that material. If you see those kind of symptoms at, at that stage of growth, you knew you had zinc deficiency early. It does stick around to show that. Now, you can probably put a foliar on if you see the zinc deficient early. Go ahead and, and put a chelated foliar zinc on and follow the label on the zinc chelates to uh, to follow that, to try to get it to green up some and grow. But, the, but when you got those problems, then it's important, I think, to get zinc in the soil and take care of the problem. Uh, this one's zinc deficient on soybeans. And of course, they're yellow. Uh, the veins remain pretty well green there, and it's intervenal material, kind of blotchy type things. But maybe not a real good picture. Uh, this amount of zinc we recommended for corn based on soil tests. I talked about that this morning. Uh, if I've had guys have a zinc deficiency and try to treat it with starter zinc or with, with a foliar. And there's one, one farmer up in South Dakota, three years, he's messing around. I finally told him to broadcast some zinc sulfate. And, and zinc sulfate is what you want, a 33 to 36% zinc. That's the soluble zinc. And that's the one you want to use. Now, if you've got a 20% and it's called something or another, make sure it's water-soluble. 
because some of that stuff is not soluble and, and it doesn't help you any. So make sure you got, uh, got a good zinc compound to put on. Now this is iron deficiency, and I like to just call that John Deere corn. It's all green and yellow. Intervenal material is yellow, green, the veins are green. Goes clear out to the tip of the leaf. Zinc striping won't go to the tip of the leaf. Iron does, and it's uh, caused, uh, here's, here's the iron on the soybeans. I call it iron chlorosis. Because when we analyze those yellow leaves, they're higher in iron than green leaves. And so it's a, not a deficiency as such. Some people call it iron deficiency syndrome, and I just call it iron chlorosis. And this is caused by calcareous soil. And, and uh, calcareous soil is free lime in the soil. And, you get, and when it gets wet, then that lime starts to dissolve and produces bicarbonate. The bicarbonate flows into the plant in mass flow, precipitates iron in the plant, so the plant can't use it. So it turns yellow. And so the, the, the thing you have to worry about is the bicarbonate. Now George Ream at, at Minnesota, with some of their things around some of those potholes at Calcareous, they found that if you planted oats, kind of the same time you planted soybeans, that the oats would maybe take up some of the water and keep, it, keep, it, keep the amount of bicarbonate down so the, the soybeans would stay green longer. Another thing you can do is uh, soy green, and then some other compounds are similar, but, but the soy green uh, chelate is an ortho-ortho. The first two words on the chelate is ortho-ortho. That's one that you can use a pound of product, one to three pounds of product with a seed, would probably be the best way to go if you have such a, such a problem. And we got these problems in, in Nebraska and in South Dakota, but uh, we had dry years in the early 2000s, and guys got soybeans going back on the Platte Valley, and, and then it rained again. Just <laughs> called them, well, we didn't have this problem before. They said, well, you got it now. And, and what do you do about it? They say, well, wait till it snows and then sell it. <laughs> Get rid of that land. <laughs> There's some, you know, the Platte River comes through there in a high water table, and the salt's fluctuating up and down, or the carbonates, and so we have problems. Now, the other one is apply sulfate to reduce the, the bicarbonate uptake. So if you have sulfate in a starter band, probably nine, five to 10 gallons of ammonium thiosulfate in the band, that will give enough sulfate then to kind of compete with the bicarbonate going to the plant and the plants will stay greener. And this is manganese deficiency. Uh, this on sugar beet, but it's a blotchy appearance. Remember on the set on the striping, it's not continuous striping, it's kind of blotchy, and that would be manganese deficiency. Kind of like that shows. And then the levels, uh, 30 part per million up to 14 leaf, and then 20 part per million uh, for up to tassel, then after that is our interpretation. And the rate of uh, manganese we'd put on, uh, most of the soil tests are gonna be above one, but probably one to six pounds, or, and I said this morning, 20 to 25 pounds of Manganese sulfate, it's I think 28% manganese. So 10 pounds would be 2.8 pounds. So it's something to try, not know if it'll work. Or you can, if you got the manganese deficiency, then, then use a manganese chelate, follow the label on the chelate for, the, for that manganese.
There are other micronutrients that are essential to plant growth and function that no-tillers should monitor closely to optimize yields. But before we get back to the program to delve into that, I'd like to take a minute to talk to you about the upcoming 2017 National No-Tillage Conference, which will be held in St. Louis January 10th through the 13th. Featuring top experts with worldwide experience, this special 25th anniversary event includes more than 100 money-making sessions and unlimited networking with the best of the no-till community. Soil health, cover crop management, no-till planter setups, fertilizer efficiency, seed treatments, weed reduction, and strategies for removing compaction are just some of the topics to be covered in this milestone event. In addition, Greg Peterson, also known as Machinery Pete, will be hosting a special seminar where he will provide expert analysis on the value of market for used no-till planters and drills, sprayers, harvesters, and other equipment, and discuss which units will look to be gaining or losing value in 2017. Peterson will also delve into the market for used precision ag equipment, including how technology, specifications, and other options influence the value of used machinery. Register today for a discounted rate of just $319 at www.notillconference.com. Ray Ward of Ward Laboratories will wrap up this No-Till Farmer podcast by continuing to discuss deficiency symptoms with various micronutrients, proper soil test levels, and application suggestions for correcting deficiencies. He'll also discuss what's important with soil health to maximize the use of micros and answer some additional questions from attendees of the 2016 National No-Tillage Conference about chloride deficiency, whether pesticide residue affects soil and plant analysis, and when to take plant samples after a foliar application. In copper, uh, I think most of the time we have adequate copper in our plants. And then uh, the, the recommendation, what we talked about this morning. It's easy to, the copper is easy because it's like zinc. You can put zinc and copper on, you raise the salt test, it'll stay around for a long time. Manganese might be an every year type thing. Don't know for sure if we can get the manganese to stay around. And of course, iron, iron is a, you have to treat all the time if you got the problem. So you need to, if you got iron problems, you need to f- select plants that have, are closest tolerant or plants that don't, aren't bothered by iron uh, deficiency or iron chlorosis. And then sometimes I think manganese is involved in that same thing with the iron. Boron, uh, and you can see the, the ears over here uh, not filled out and that's what, what if, you, if you really had a deficiency, this picture's from southeast Kansas where they have a few deficiencies. I have not seen anything like this in any other part of the, of the corn growing area in Nebraska, Kansas, uh, kind of thing, South Dakota. But if you, don't have, if you don't have filling on any seeds, that might be a trigger that you got boron problems. And the boron would be five to 25 part per million. This is on corn. And uh, if you got beans, it needs to be 10 part per million and some of those things. But and just be careful if put on a, a foliar boron. It says the foliar doesn't work, but you spray it on, it falls on the ground, and then the plants, plants take it up. And the recommendation, uh, just a, you know, five-tenths of a pound is all you need. 
to take, kind of take care of the boron. And if you put on, you know, one pound or up to three pounds, if you're for alfalfa, don't put it on every year. That'll be enough for several years. And boron is, they say it's soluble, but it's not that soluble. It doesn't move real fast in the soil. And then chloride is the last one on wheat. It looks like a disease problem. And uh, this is potash on the, on the right side and no potash on the left side in this plot up in, <coughs> up in South Dakota. And then uh, these are the, uh, the deficiency symptoms. As, as a plant goes, as a as, as plant develops, the chloride goes up instead of down for the requirement, which is kind of interesting. One and, and most of them go down, but the chloride goes up with the development. And this is a picture of the of the diseased leaf, so to speak, and the chloride and the one that had chloride on it. So if you have spotted spotted things on the leaves, and and uh, you haven't used any potash then you might have chloride deficiency. And that would be in our western areas more than it is, would be here. And the last one is uh, molybdenum. And mal again, molybdenum interferes with nitrate reductase. The plant, take, you know, the plant takes in nitrate, then it has to reduce the nitrate to NH2 ions that can go into the plant to build proteins. And, and so, Molybdenum is needed to convert nitrate to NH2. And so if you've if you got nitrogen on and the plants aren't responding, you might have a, a molybdenum problem. Okay. Have you ever, have you ever coated uh, soybean seed with molybdenum? No. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I think I'd try that. I really would. So, and, and so we, one, one time, we, we pulled up some plants that had good nodules on it and I analyzed the leaves. I took the leaves off this plant and took the nodules. The nodules had five times more molybdenum in them than the leaves had in them. So it's kind of interesting. And, and for, you know, it probably only cost a buck to put that powder on to see if it would, it would respond. No, the rhizobia needs molybdenum. The, the sodium molybdate powder shouldn't be, but... But if you read something, then that's something to pay attention to. You might have to. Can you boil or feed it? Yeah, with that four, two to four ounces of Molly solution, just fully or feed it. Yeah. And these are the guys that, that, that did that on the Molly in South Dakota and Kansas. They were doing the foliar application. But, but you know, the, the interesting one about molybdenum, we don't know very much about it, is that when I was in graduate school in the about 1960, we knew that in southeast states, they always coated the beans with molybdenum because they had such acid soils and they needed molybdenum. So it's, uh, these are some interesting things maybe you can learn on those things. And now, now we can ask questions. Can you add that to glyphosate? Can you add molybdenum to glyphosate? Who's the herbicide person? You you jar test it all, <laughs> yeah. Now the the one on the magnesium sulfate, this farmer down in Oklahoma, after he found his wheat responded so good to the, he just used mag, half magnesium or half Epsom salts, half ammonium sulfate in his glyphosate solution. He was spraying magnesium on everything.
So, and that I know works, but, and this, this should work too. Now, the, you know, one of those things on the soil life thing, and we talk about this fertility, and we're talking about soil health type thing in soil life. And some, some guy want, he asked me about, if we just poured that fertility on, can we get there right away? And I said, no, we, want, we have to have those microbes and all that stuff working together to build this thing gradually. So you, so you don't, there's no need to spend a lot of money trying to improve it all in one year. It won't work. So, so if you're low, you need to put a little more on, but does a shotgun load of micronutrient mix help? It sure does the guy selling it. <laughs> and, and, and I, I have no idea. I, I just, I don't like those kind of things that they make those. I think you should treat the nutrient that you're, that you have a problem with. And I said, I'd, we need to do the jar test and find out. I, th I think you can, but you better test it first. And then, or else talk to a herbicide guy, please. I, I, uh, I don't get involved in that part of it anymore. Uh, Evans Enterprises out of Olathe, Kansas says there you got better. It's ammonium chloride, so I have to say that. Potassium chloride, ammonium chloride, they're both good sources. And, and ammonium chloride is dry and liquid, where the potassium is, potassium chloride's dry. So you have a choice there on ammonium chloride. Evans Enterprises out of Olathe, Kansas. Uh, they, uh, can, do I recommend rinsing the leaves off to get rid of pesticide residues and can that affect analysis? And yes, some pesticides have some elements in them that, that we, we would measure and, and could throw that test off. And it'd be, yeah, if, you, if you would please do that, rinse if you could with DI water or RO water from drinking bottle uh, and, and that would be okay. Because normally we don't, uh, don't rinse them in the lab. Some, some of them are too dry when they come in, stuff. So, yeah, it'd be nice, nice to do that. Yeah. So how long would you want to wait after doing a foliar application of a nutrient? How long would you want to wait to take a sample to see if it's on there? And my, my idea would be about 10 days. I, 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 that would give time to get in the plant and stuff, so. If you had a, if you had a molybdenum deficiency, you, you should have less nitrogen getting in the plant. And so the nitrogen-sulfur ratio would go down. So, so there you'd have a nitrogen deficiency, not a sulfur deficiency. So if you had yellow plants and that ratio was, you know, in that 12 to 15 range, it's a nitrogen deficiency, not a sulfur. Yeah, that, that would be a good question. Uh, that three, three V3 on soybeans, the, the plants kind of turn. Yellow, and it could be uh, molybdenum. They show okay, are there nodules on? Are there nodules there yet? That would be, you know, that would be the first thing I'd check. If there's nodules there, they should be fixing nitrogen, and then I'd worry about molybdenum. If there's no nodules, then, then I, you got other problems, I guess. Right. Yeah. If the nodules are there, and they're not, don't have enough molybdenum to. To fix nitrogen, then the plant's going to be short of nitrogen. Yeah. Right, the molybdenum would, would be there to, feed, to, to give the rhizobia, the molybdenum. Now, the, the, the other person said you might affect the inoculant if you put sodium molybdate on with the inoculant. But if you're growing soybeans all the time, you could skip the inoculant.
We'd like to sincerely thank Ray Ward of Ward Laboratories for sharing his insights and experiences on the important topics of managing micronutrients with soil testing and fertilizer. Again, we'd like to recognize our, and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping make this Dotil Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdauberstein at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Ray Ward, founder and president of Ward Laboratories, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm John Dauberstein. Thanks for listening.